You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I couldn't pick a single topic to kick off this week's show. There's just too much good stuff out there. So I'm going to tear through a few topics before we begin. First up, Reverend Meth and Manass, Reverend Ted Haggard back in the headlines and back in them for precisely what you might have guessed if you're old enough to remember the last time Reverend Meth and Manass was giving us all headlines. Back in 2006, Haggard was the head of the National Association of Evangelicals, a powerful leader on the religious right, founder of a mega, mega church in Colorado Springs, which is probably now a mega, mega church like all the others. Haggard, at the time, had a weekly phone call with then-President George W. Bush, the worst president we thought we'd ever have. Boy, were we wrong. And Haggard wasn't just openly anti-gay. He was flagrantly anti-gay, flamingly anti-gay. And then a gay sex worker heard Haggard publicly attacking gays and figured people had a right to know Haggard had been privately attacking his dick. So Mike Jones, honest sex worker, outed Ted Haggard, dishonest preacher. And it turns out Haggard wasn't just after sex from Jones. He begged Jones to buy him meth. And Jones had it all on tape. Voicemails. Haggard left him. The Haggard sex scandal broke right before the 2006 midterm elections. And after that election, a lot of political observers thought the Haggard scandal helped create a democratic wave that year. In 2006, Dems took the House and Senate, a bunch of state houses and governor's mansions. Voters were disgusted with pious hypocrites like Ted Haggard and incompetent fucking idiots like George W. Bush. Well, looks like the scandal fairy or the good omen fairy or both those fairies want this year's midterm elections to go the way the 2006 midterm elections did. How else to explain Haggard making headlines for being back on the poll just a few months before the rest of us go to the polls. The Denver Gazette reports powerhouse preacher Ted Haggard faces new allegations of illicit behavior. Haggard founded a new church in 2010 because of course he did, because P.T. Barnum was wrong. There's not a sucker born every minute. There's a sucker baptized every minute. Well, it turns out young men at Haggard's new church have come forward to say Haggard has been touching them inappropriately, allegedly, and also using meth, again, allegedly. Here's hoping Reverend Meth and Manass does for 2022 what he did for 2006, sprinkles a little of that vote the pious hypocrites out fairy dust all over the election and helps elect Dems. When I call him Reverend Meth and Manass, I'm referring to a song that actor and musician Paul Hip wrote about Haggard, Meth and Manass on a Sunday morning. Worth looking up, worth listening to, still slaps, so good, been listening to it all morning. Next, a quick update on Stan Pulliam. You may remember Stan. He was the Republican mayor of a small town in Oregon who was running for governor of Oregon as a family values conservative and a Trump supporter, a backer of the big lie. Stan was going on right-wing media outlets to campaign against Portland values, the same way national conservatives campaign against San Francisco values. Ooh, the big cities, that's where the perverts are. You gotta watch out. At one point, Stan was the front runner and looking like he might get the Republican nomination for governor. But then we all learned that Pulliam, the mayor of a tiny town, Sandy, Oregon, Pulliam and his wife 
were swingers. Swingers that swang or swung with other swingers in, you'll never guess, Portland. So there were some Portland values Stan couldn't get behind, like living wages or defunding the police. But there were some he could, like open relationships and group sex and watching other men fuck the mother of your children. Pulliam didn't deny it. That's to his credit, I guess, but he couldn't really deny it. There was too much evidence, photographic evidence, to credibly deny these charges. But Pulliam argued that it was a private matter. You know, privacy. Republicans have a right to some. You don't have a right to any. And he said it was a long time ago, way, 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 way back in 2016. Turns out GOP voters were not throbbing with excitement at the prospect of pulling their levers for Stan. Oregon's GOP voters didn't come through for Pulliam. Unlike Portland's swingers, GOP voters didn't seem to want to come anywhere near Pulliam. Don't know how I missed it at the time. The vote was back on May 17th. Pulliam came in third in a crowded field. Sloppy thirds with just 10% of the vote. And finally, who is the Prince of Pegging? And why was Prince of Pegging trending on Twitter last week in the UK? Claire Lampin at the cut ranked the likely candidates from most to least likely. Prince William, Prince Harry, Prince Andrew, and Prince Philip. Gotta say, that last one, Prince Philip, seems not just least likely to me, but impossible, seeing as Prince Philip has been dead for two years. Lampin's piece at the cut opened with the likeliest candidate, Prince William. But before we go too far down this road, Lampin wrote, I should note that William's purported love of pegging derives from pure speculation. Nothing here comes remotely close to being confirmed. Lampin traces the rumor back to a royal blind item on a celebrity gossip slash PR account called Du Moi. At a recent media party, the Du Moi blind item author writes, I was told the real reason for this royal's rumored affair was the royal's love of pegging, which his wife is far too old fashioned to engage in. The wife doesn't mind and in fact prefers her husband getting his sexual needs met elsewhere. Here's hoping this royal wife, whoever she might be, just like Mrs. Haggard and Mrs. Pulliam, is getting her needs met elsewhere too. But you know why I care about this, right? With Prince of Pegging trending in the UK over the weekend and online searches for the definition of pegging in the UK skyrocketing, the definition my readers created. There are now more people in the UK, home to the Oxford English Dictionary, who know the definition of pegging today than knew the definition of pegging last week. So Oxford English Dictionary editors, we have another argument here for getting pegging into finally the Oxford English Dictionary where it belongs. That's really all I want for Christmas. We got a lot of calls from bi guys last week. Who better to help us tackle them than America's most prominent bi guy, Zachary Zane, sex advice columnist himself, co-author of Men's Health Best Sex Ever, and the forthcoming memoir that you can order now, pre-order now online, Boy Slut. Zachary Zane joins me to help answer a few questions. We talk about dibs, the bro code, monkeypox, and how to ask your third in your regular three ways whether they've been tested for STIs. And of course, be sure to read my advice column every week, Savage Love, which goes up Tuesday mornings at savage.love slash savage love. This week, I explain the difference between cut queening, hot husbanding, and whoring out your husband to a woman who tried to do her own research, but just wound up more confused. That's in Savage Love. Now let's get to your calls on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, Dan, I'm a gay 
43-year-old man living in Southern California. Always considered myself maybe a little bit bi, but I've only um, had sex with men and dated men up until this point. And I've always enjoyed MMF porn and kind of fantasize about being with a man and a woman at the same time, but I've never kind of had the opportunity or sought out the opportunity to do that. Uh, recently, I was on the apps and I was horny and I met a trans man. Um, so this is a man with a vagina and we clicked and ended up getting together and having sex and it was phenomenal. It was great sex. They were super fun. And what I really liked about it was I loved their vagina. I loved licking it and I loved playing with the clit and I liked fucking it. And I never thought before that I would be so into a vagina. Uh, now I can't stop thinking about it and I kind of want to sleep with a woman. But my dilemma or my question is I don't really want to sleep with a woman and tell her that I'm a gay man. I just feel like she will treat it differently than if it was a heterosexual uh, man sleeping with her. And, and I can't really thoroughly explain why that is in my head. I just have that feeling like I don't want to go into it as like, I'm a gay man sleeping with you. I've thought about going to other cities to do this so that it can be kind of pre-established that this is like, you know, I'm in town for business. It's a one, one time meetup type of situation. Is it ethical for me to sleep with a woman and not disclose my sexuality as long as it's kind of pre-established as like a really short-term relationship. Your question reminded me of a subplot in I May Destroy You, which was is the insanely good HBO comedy drama created by Michaela Cole, uh, who also stars in it. The whole series really explores consent and what can be blurry about consent and problematic. And and there's a there's a subplot with a gay male character, one of uh, Michaela Cole's characters best friend, uh, that character's named Kwame. And he, you know, in the wake of a sexual assault, begins to be curious about maybe sleeping with a woman or feeling safer sleeping with a woman. And he picks up a woman and he's a gay identified man. He sleeps with that woman without disclosing to her that he was a gay man. And of course, that woman made the entirely reasonable assumption that this guy who was interested in her was straight, maybe by, but definitely interested in her, interested in women generally, open to women romantically and sexually. Kwame was out experimenting. And this woman is angry later because she didn't consent to being experimented on or experimented in or experimented with. So, yeah, the message in I May Destroy You, one of the things Kwame learns is that's something that he did need to disclose and his failure to disclose or his allowing this woman to make the entirely reasonable assumption in that instance, in that case, uh, in the case of here's this hot dude who's interested in me sexually, that that was you know, leveraging the reasonable assumption in a way that tiptoes into or collapses into an unethical violation of someone's consent. You know, a lot of people run around saying you shouldn't make these assumptions. You shouldn't make assumptions. If you make an assumption, that's on you. But, 
you know, I'm a gay dude. If I ask some woman out on a date, as Kwame did, she's going to make the entirely reasonable assumption that I am, at the very least, not a gay dude, straight or bi. And so how does this all play into your circumstance? Well, if you want to have a sexual experience with a woman, I definitely think you should explore the male, male, female three-way option. There are a lot of bi guys out there with female partners uh, who are interested in finding a guy who is down to fuck them and fuck with them, but also down to fuck with the wife. And so you could, as the mostly gay guy who's into women, into pussy, be in great demand. And that MMF three-way that you fantasized about is certainly something that with a little bit of digging around on field or other dating apps, it wouldn't be hard to set up for yourself. But if you're fantasizing about meeting someone and then really thinking that you're a straight guy, that means allowing them to make that assumption. Is it ethical to do that? Well, if you're going to make it clear to someone that this is a hookup, that you're in town for business and you're never going to be back and you're not interested in a relationship or a connection that you're just looking for sex. Well, I guess it's a little less problematic because even though you're allowing this person to make the assumption that you're straight and if that person believing in you as sort of a Tinkerbell heterosexual at that moment, if that person clapping for you arouses you or is going to make it easier for you to, not easier for you to perform, but you know, you're going to be able to role play the straight guy and this person's mistaken belief that you are a straight guy is going to fuel your fantasy. And is that okay? Well, I guess I, I kind of, I'm hemming and hawing cause I kind of want to sign off on it. I don't think that your sexual orientation is necessarily something that you have to disclose to someone that you're going to have a one-time sexual encounter with. And you are, as you are discovering, buyer than you thought you were. And maybe you're moving into identifying as bisexual now. And, and you know, there's nothing bi about a gay guy sleeping with a trans guy with a pussy that gay sucks. But you're not just interested in pussies attached to men. You're interested in pussies attached to women. And so I think you're moving toward bisexuality, perhaps a bisexual identity. And yeah, yeah, I guess I would sign off on this, but I, I would warn you that it is a small world. And this person who is out of town with our phones spying on us all the time may stumble over you on Instagram and see that you are a gay identified man living a mostly gay life. All that said, you also have the option of putting it out there exactly who you are. I'm a gay dude, mostly slept with gay guys, been gay identified all this time, interested in exploring sex one-off with a woman. There are a lot of women out there that I hear from all the time and have heard from for 30 years who would like to get with a gay guy. I think you should explore that too. I don't think that you're required to explore that only, but that's also definitely an option for you. And maybe being with a woman who's grooving on, turned on by the idea of your homosexuality or your gay identity would be just as exciting, just as arousing as being with a woman who had completely bought into the idea that you, the guy in front of her, the guy she's having this one night stand with, the guy from out of town, is a straight guy, which, you know, isn't an assumption that women should make about every guy that they meet, but 
is a reasonable assumption. And if you don't want to be guilty of leveraging someone's reasonable assumption against them to get something out of them they might not have given you had they not made that reasonable assumption, you will disclose. Hello, Dan. This is a gay man out here in the Southwest. I'm 61 years old. I am practicing solo polyamorous and ethical non-monogamy. And I happen to be newly dating a trans man in his 50s. I have not seen a vagina since the last time I came out of my mother and her uterus and her vagina 61 years ago. I've only had sex with gay men. And this is so new and out of pocket for me. I didn't know that this person was trans until a friend told me, but I did not recoil. I am on a new adventure in my life at 61, and I have leaned into getting to know this person. We have had sex, and he just told me that what he really prefers is penetration. I'm learning everything about cunnilingus, <laughs> the clit, and I'm really enjoying that. However, when it's time to penetrate, I get all up in my head and I can't get an erection. It's happened like twice. I've had a conversation with him and he says that he's also experiencing having sex with a cisgendered gay man as well. I get so nervous. I get up in my head and I'm just wondering how could I approach this uh, because I really like this guy. I really do. I feel good when we're together, and he likes me too. But I want to be able to satisfy his wants, and I want him to satisfy me too. So if you have any advice or anything that you could assist me with, I would appreciate it very much. You know, it's a funny thing. I had uh, sex with women before I came out when I was a teenager, 15, 16 years old, and I could do it. I could have PIV, vaginal intercourse, and stay hard and get off. But you know what I couldn't do? I couldn't go down. I couldn't eat pussy. I couldn't engage with the clitoris in any direct way. None of the women that I had sex with when I was a teenager had orgasms. Uh, and it was possible for me to, to have this kind of sex. And I was really pressured into it, like the culture, society, my church, my family. I thought I had to learn how to have sex with women. And my first takeaway the first time I had sex with a woman was, oh, I can do this. I can fake this, you know, because I had sex with a woman and closed my eyes and pretended that she was a dude. I think I pretended she was Sean Cassidy. That's how long ago it was. And then as I, you know, slept with her some more and slept with a few other girls that I dated, the takeaway ultimately was I can't do this. I can't fake this for the next 50, 60 years. And it's not fair to this woman that I'm doing this to, that I'm, you know, shutting my eyes and jacking off inside of. And so going down on her would have like prevented me from closing my eyes and pretending that she was a man, you know, directly facing it would have shattered my carefully constructed uh, illusion that made it possible for me to perform at all. So call her that you are already exploring cunnilingus, that you're going down on your new boyfriend. It seems to me that you've cleared the much bigger hurdle and that if you just give yourself a little bit more time to acclimate, 
uh, and take the pressure off your dick. Cause you know, you probably, you know, it could be that you lost your erection because it's a vagina and your dick's never been in a vagina, but your face has just been in a vagina. And if you were hard when your face was in the vagina, I think you can stay hard when you put your dick in the vagina. And it may just be a coincidence that, you know, one of those things, you know, you're 61, I'm close. Sometimes you lose your boners for random reasons and you've overdetermined the reason here and you're attributing it to, oh, because there's a vagina, my dick's never been in a vagina, and now oh, you're in your head about it. Like you said, you're in your head about it. And the best way to get out of your head about this sort of thing is to take the pressure off and to enjoy sex and be patient, enjoy sex with your new partner. I don't know if they're a boyfriend yet, but enjoy sex with your new sex partner. And if you're hard and you want to attempt penetration, go for it. If you lose your erection, while attempting penetration, keep having sex, do other stuff. Boner comes back, get hard again, try again, but just relax. If you make it feel like everything, pleasure, this moment, the sex you're having, everything hinges on whether you can obtain and sustain, as they say in the ED med commercials, an erection, you are likelier to lose your erection. But if you go into it, with the attitude that hard or not, I'm going to have fun. You're likelier to get hard. So here's to new experiences. Here's to new possibilities. And here's to you getting hard and getting in there. Hey Dan, a uh, 30 year old from California here. My boyfriend and I have been together about three years. The first half of our relationship we met in California. Um, he was in the States on a student visa. We moved in together. Things were great. He wasn't able to get his visa renewed. Long story short, he is back in his home country and hasn't been able to travel back to the U.S. And there really aren't any options for him to get back here at this point other than us getting married. It's been about a year and a half of us being uh, long distance like this. I've got to see him a ton. I've been able to go to his country and, and work from there remotely. But I've been back in California um, for about six months now, and it's just getting to a point where the extreme long distance is just too much. Uh, we both really love each other. We miss each other, and we've been talking about marriage. He's made it clear that he's open to that, um, even ready for it, maybe. I come from a pretty conservative background. I came out when I was 23. You know, I've, I've been out for a while now, but I've never really had to face the question of, of marriage and, like, what it means as a gay man. And it's at a point where, like, I have to make up my mind or, like, we're not going to be able to be together. We're not going to be able to live together. So I'd love any advice you have on how to think through this. You know, I think I have a lot of hesitation around getting married for a visa, but it's so much more than that. But I just have all of these, like, confused feelings around this of, like, one day, I'm ready to get married the next day I'm not. One day I have one definition of marriage, the next day I've thought of a completely different one. So I just keep going back and forth, back and forth, and it's, it's the clock is kind of ticking here on both of us being together and both of us being happy and kind of, I feel like, the timing for this to work. It's about the parents, isn't it? It's about the conservative family. I think that's definitely part of it, yes. Uh, I think it might be most of it because you don't sound at all ambivalent about this guy or about the relationship. We both really love each other. We really miss each other. And, you know, it just, it, it's, I don't understand what the, the problem is. You say, you know, I don't know what marriage means to me as a gay man. Marriage, if you read my book, marriage means what the two people in any marriage decide their marriage means. 
And so it doesn't matter. It, there's not one definition of marriage for all gay men, for all people, for all straight people. Marriage is what those two people say that it is. And it would even be fine, I think, to marry for a green card. So, you know, for a visa that you guys could still continue to date and explore this relationship. But it's been three years and you love him. So even if part of it's the green card, it doesn't sound like that's, you're not like, oh, I kind of like this guy. I'm not sure about this guy. Why wouldn't you marry this guy? I think with the parents, what's hard is I, I do have a good relationship with my parents. I think they're a, they're pretty supportive in general. I think, I mean, it came out, I guess, maybe six or seven years ago, but we've never had any sort of conversations about like me getting married. It's definitely something I've always been insecure about, I guess, and like what they think of it. Like I'm, I'm still tethered somewhat to like their opinion of me. And I, I think it almost makes it harder that I, I do care a lot about their opinion. Like, I just don't know. So it is about the parents. My hunch is correct. It is about the parents, right? Yeah. You're you're worried that you're worried that their acceptance of you is conditional, that you're gay and they can accept that, but not gay marriage, gay, not, is that going to embarrass your family? Are they prominent in some way? Are they hiding you? Because there is a public aspect to marriage, which for some conservative parents is like, okay, we love you. We accept you. So long as you don't do anything drastic, so long as we're not required to come to a wedding or announce a wedding or our friends aren't going to find out that you're gay even, because sometimes that's how you know extended family or social networks find out a kid is gay. It's the parents didn't run around saying, oh, by the way, you know, Johnny Sue came out to me our third son is gay and they just like don't talk about it in a marriage, you know, planning a wedding, announcing a wedding that might force them to talk about it. And are they uncomfortable with that? Do you think that might be their hang up or your concern? Yeah, I think so. And I think I know that that will affect me in some way of like how they react to it. And I think I am like, now that we're talking about this, I feel like this is like one of the, the main issues here. Like I, I've always known this, but I guess I didn't think it was like, as major as it it may be mm-hmm. but it it's kind of like we've av- avoided like we we don't avoid me being gay like they've met my boyfriend they've met all my boyfriends like they're supportive but they still like go to church every sunday like they don't know any other gay people like i i feel like like even imagining like some sort of like reception or like whatever it would be if we get married like i just it is still uncomfortable for me, I guess, to think about like that image in my head and like how I'm going to feel about how they're feeling. Like, and I know that obviously that, that shouldn't be like my main focus, but like, I'm an only child. I, I am close to my parents. Like, I just feel like I do still have a lot tied to them. What do they want for you? They want me to be happy. Do they want you to be alone? Do they want you not to have right. a spouse or a partner? You know, there's one of two things are going on here. Your parents are, uh, you know, conditionally accepting of your homosexuality and they have somehow subtly made that clear to you without saying it or you're underestimating them. Yeah, I could see that. I think I'm, I'm so scared to even like of the reaction. Like I just, I don't know. I just don't really know how that's going to go. And like, I, there's really not a sign, I guess that it would go negatively, but I, I guess I'm wanting more from it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm wishing or wanting that it there's some better response or some like, I don't know, like I have some dream of like, I grew up in a super liberal family or something. And like my mom's like, 
throwing pride beads or like, I don't know. Like, I just, <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it's the having the gay kid that turns a conservative family around, maybe not a hundred percent around, maybe not a 180 degree turn, but a 90 degree turn, you know, 120 degree turn. I think that part of your hesitancy may be you have a close relationship with your parents, despite having come out, despite your homosexuality and that's precious to you, and I understand that, uh, and that's understandable. And you're worried that if they have a negative reaction to you marrying, or they're not as supportive as you would hope they would be, that it's going to poison your relationship with your parents going forward. You know what else would poison your relationship with your parents? Sacrificing your relationship with your boyfriend on the altar of what you think they want, or the assumptions you're making about them. Right. No, that totally makes sense. I think I think I need to find a way to just like bring it up and start talking about it. And and you already did that once. This is yeah. has to be easier than mom, dad, I put dicks in my mouth, right? right. <laughs> mom, dad, I'm gay. Mom, dad, here are a bunch of mental images. It's going to take you some time to not have play through your mind every time you think about me, right? That was my big stumbling block with, you know, for my mom telling my mom was I could just see the like me getting fucked in the ass on her face. Like I could see that mental image going pinging around inside her cranium. Right. And we tell our parents we're gay and they eventually learn how to suppress that mental image, just like they suppress that mental image for our straight siblings. I have straight siblings. You're an only child. You know, when they look at my sister and her boyfriend, you know, back then, four fucking decades ago, they didn't see my sister sucking her boyfriend's dick, even though they knew she was. And eventually they learned not to see me sucking my boyfriend's dick and later my husband's dick, even though they knew I was and am and always will be, right? That is a much higher hurdle for parents to clear. In a way, you know, for the conservative parents, you doing what, you know, even some of queer people think is a very conservative thing and marrying and settling down and making a formal legal commitment. Yeah, that may require them to tell people that they hope they would never have to tell if they're closeted parents of a gay person. Or it may bring you closer together or it may blow up in your face and they'll have a negative reaction. And then you have to process that and you'll be closer together five or ten years down the road after they work through it. But, dude, you're in love yeah. with someone. And I wish we had open borders. The Wall Street Journal wishes we had open borders, or used to, pre-Trump. We don't. The only way for you guys to be together is to marry. And get a prenuptial agreement, nail it down, that this is, if it isn't, like, if you're not 100% committed to this relationship, that this is about logistics right now. And we can have a vow renewal ceremony that's more formal and a bigger deal, you know, five years from now, that this is the marriage that allows us to keep dating as we get toward engagement. Like you can put that all kind of in a prenup and then revisit that in a, a few years. Yeah. It, you already took the risk of telling your parents you're gay. This is a smaller risk. Totally. And I think like kind of what you just said about, having like your own definition of marriage. I think I'm also kind of like nervous about that too. Like just seeing my parents, like never been like they've been together for however long, like forever. And like the thought of me explaining to them, like, like it's oversimplifying to say I'm like marrying for a visa or maybe it's not, I don't know. But like the thought of like saying that and explaining that to them of like, 
this commitment might mean something you know, different. Like I'm, I'm just fucking scared. You, you don't have don't to tell them that you can, all you have to tell them is we've been dating. We dated for a year and a half and then we've been doing long distance for a year and a half and we want to get married so we can be together. Period. The end that there's something you might be holding back uh, in getting the prenup signed or having a discussion with your, I hope at the end of this call, fiance about, um, you know, what the marriage means right now versus what it might mean in another couple of years. You don't have to run your parents on a need to know basis. They don't need to know that, right? Present him as your husband without reservation. And then, right. you know, if he's still your husband without reservation in five years, great. You don't have to tell them anything else. And if you guys decide to separate and divorce in five years, as some couples do, then it just didn't work out for reasons. And your parents just need the bare outline. But like, come on, listening to you talk about him, it's so clear to me that you sound like a man in love and you should marry that dude. And listening to you like quickly mention your parents and then hurry past that. I knew that was the (laughs) issue. I knew that was the problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to tell myself that that's, that I'm still not hung up on something like that. Right. It's like, I've done all this work. It's been this time. And like, I still have this issue with it. And or with my parents and it's, it might be just an issue that I'm creating in my mind, but I think also going with that of like, oh, it's, I don't think it's an issue you're creating in your mind necessarily. There are a lot of people who came out as gay and the family was fine. And then they announced their wedding and the family freaked out and it would, they didn't expect that. They didn't see that coming. There's also a lot of people who came out as gay and the family was weird and withholding and very conditionally accepting. And then they announced that they were going to get married and their family was all in. Because sometimes, you know, for some conservative families, the wedding is too much. It's an insult to what marriage means and a man and a woman and all that. For other conservative families, it's like this is – they feel honored by their gay kids doing what their straight kids would do and marrying the people, the person <laughs> that they love. Hopefully one day in the future we can marry the people we love too for all the poly people out there. But there's only one way to find out the reaction your parents are going to have, and that's to tell them. And you're going to have to do that because it's the only way you're going to be able to be together with your, with I, I don't want to say your boyfriend, I want to say your fucking fiance. Call that man, propose to him right now. Good luck, okay? Awesome. Thanks, Dan. I'll keep you guys posted. Dan, you're the only person I can ask about this. I'm a 50 year old cis hat woman, and I think I'm going to get fucked up the ass next week for the first time. So I'm in a companionate marriage, 20 years. We haven't had sex in 16 years. But I have a person, a man that I've been having sex with for the last eight years. Straightforward heterosexual sex, nothing, you know, crazy. But in the last, like, two months, he's gotten into my ass, like, putting his, like, fingers in. And, uh, you know, this is something I fantasized about my whole life, but never, like, would ever do because I would never want to have to ask for it, but someone wants to do it. So anyway, suddenly he's into it. I've listened to you for a long time, so I know, play with toys, fingers, lots of lube. But what else do I need to know? Because I think it's going to happen next time I see him, and I want it to, but I feel very inexperienced at 50 years old. Oh my God, you sound excited. I'm so excited for you. And whoever said that you can't teach old dogs new tricks or tempt old dogs to try new tricks. Uh, The first thing I would recommend to you is The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women, Tristan Tarmino's classic, originally published in 1997. There's a second edition, a revision out now. Um, Pick that up. 
give it a read. If you don't have time to buy and read a book, if the anal is truly imminent, my advice to you would be the advice I've given to young gay men who've never had anal sex before. Anal sex ain't gay sex, gay sex ain't anal sex, but young gay men who are about to explore what for many young gay men is a emotionally important kind of definitional sex act and have anal sex for the first time, which is, like you said, lots of lube, tongue, fingers first. Also toys, maybe some toys that are a little smaller than his dick. And my advice is not to jump right to ass fucking. What you really want to do, because for a lot of people, um, you know, the first time there may be a little bit of pain or it may be, you, you may tense up if you have to go from zero to 60, zero being never had my ass fucked before, to 60, some buddy with a dick slamming it out of your ass and taking their pleasure on your ass and fucking your ass. That's too much, that kind of zero to 60. What you want to do first is get to 15 or 25 miles an hour to torture the metaphor and have some anal play during which you are being stimulated in other ways, ways that reliably get you off and have a few orgasms while your ass is engaged, while your ass is in play. Maybe that means he goes down on you when you have a butt plug-in or a vibrating butt plug-in or a small dildo. You like work on in inserting, you know, an insertable that's not as intimidating as the insertable he came with and then focus on your pleasure and create an association between that feeling of having something in your ass and an orgasm, create a strong association between something up your butt and getting off and that kind of pleasurable sensation. And that'll make the first time he's going to slip his dick into you less scary. And it's one of the things that makes it sexy and arousing is that it is scary in some respect. All right. Once you get, you move on to ass fucking, you still have to regard or treat his dick as a toy. He can get it in you, but the point those first few times isn't for him to get it in you and slam it in and out of you and to fuck you for his pleasure. It's to get it in you, give that, give you, again, that filled up feeling that you associate with pleasure because you've had a bunch of orgasms with that filled up feeling just with, you know, being filled up with other things or smaller things or vibrating things and pleasure yourself, get yourself off. And then you begin to move, you control the speed, depth, pace of the first time or the first few times you get fucked. So rather than thinking of it as he's going to fuck your ass, you're going to fuck your ass. You're going to fuck your ass with his dick like you might fuck your ass if you were alone with a dildo or a toy, which is something else I recommend to people who are just exploring ass play for the first time with a partner. Maybe some solo ass play where you aren't having to weigh somebody else's turn-ons, desires, expectations as you see what your body is capable of and what kind of pleasure you can experience with anal stimulation. So pick up Tristan Tarmino's book, The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. It's terrific. And the first few times you go there, you say he's already playing with your ass, so maybe you're already doing this, but the first few times you try anal to get fucked, not about his dick, it's about your butt and your pleasure, and the stronger a connection you can make, the stronger the association is between your butt being in play and you feeling pleasure, you getting off, the better the ass fucking is going to be for you and for him when you get there, when you 
build up to it. And the better it is for you and for him when you get there, the more often you're going to be excited about him doing that to you. Hey, Dan, mid-30s gay guy Mary here. I have a question about moving cross-country for spouse's dream job. The deal is my husband has been working towards getting a job at a Michelin star restaurant all of his life, and I don't want to stand in the way of him taking this job. I have a very comfortable, queer, unionized job, and I am very comfortable in my neighborhood. The job opportunity that he has would take us to the East Coast in a town of 100 people. Now, where I live currently, I have a vast network of ex-lovers, best friends, chosen family, job opportunities, as well as opportunities for affordable housing. The housing is only offered under the circumstances that I am single. How do I allow my husband to take a job in a place that I am terrified to move to because I cannot come up with an exit strategy for that situation? I've spent my life building a network in a very liberal state, and I am terrified to move to a small town where I have no friends, and all the people I would interact with will be his coworkers. I've never driven a car, and I've never had a driver's license, and I have no desire to drive, but I would have to drive to find work in the nearest cities, and that work will not be unionized, it will be minimum wage and service positions. What would you do? What should I do? How do I allow him to live his life without giving up my life? Wait, you say your housing is only available to people who are single and yet you're married, hence this problem. So is your is your husband, does he not live with you? Are you sneaking him in? Is he a puppy and you passed him off as a pet? Inquiring minds want to know. You know, I've known a lot of people who've worked in the restaurant industry and those kinds of jobs – um, Michelin starred restaurants or, you know, gigs in restaurants where people have ambitions, they are often stepping stones. They People throw themselves into them for a couple of years and then they move on. So maybe the solution here is for you and your husband to agree to do the long distance thing for a while. The previous caller so far has made it work for 1.5 years with his boyfriend uh, doing the long distance thing as they think about marriage. You can make it work. I've been doing a long distance thing for years and years and years myself. You can make this work. You describe your life as, you know, you have this vast network of ex-lovers and best friends and chosen family. And yet there's this underlying assumption from your question, uh, informing your dilemma, that since you two are husbands, you need to live together at all times. And that's not necessarily true. You can allow him to take this job. It is unreasonable, I think, for him to expect you to come to a town of 100 people where you'll be cut off from everyone and everything you know, where you don't know how to drive, you don't have a car. I think it's more reasonable for you to say to him, look, chase your dreams. Go work in that Michelin-starred restaurant. I will hold down the fort here. You can come here on vacations. I will come there to see you on vacations. We'll talk every night on Zoom. We'll jack off on the internet a lot together. And then we'll see. 
if this turns into a permanent gig or his next job takes him somewhere else and you guys are sick of doing the long distance thing, well, then you can revisit the conversation about where you're going to live and whether you're going to move or he can move back to where you are. He can, as many people do who are ambitious, striving, you know, chefs, cooks, restaurateurs who get jobs in Michelin-starred restaurants. It's not to work in somebody else's Michelin-starred restaurant forever. It's to open your own place someday. And maybe instead of panicking about the short term, you should be talking about the long term and seeing if there isn't a long-term plan for him to come back to where you live, to where you met, where you are based, where you have your union job, where you have your network of friends and ex-lovers, and open his dream restaurant there where you live, in the big or bigger city. But right now, you don't have to decide to go with him. Right now, you can decide to do things a little differently, to be queer husbands and long-distance at least for the next year, and then revisit this conversation and this, perhaps a year from now, this conflict and come to some agreement that maybe he'll move back, maybe you'll move there, or maybe you'll move to the city, the next restaurant that he's going to work in is at, and maybe that'll be a bigger, better city. Hi, Dan. I am a 36-year-old queer male living in New York City, largely living in gay, polyamorous, slut world in Brooklyn. And I have found recently that I'm running up against a couple of my edges. I have never had a relationship in my life that I would identify as being a primary relationship. And I love having sex. I love hooking up with people that I have found connection with. And I really appreciate those connections when I have them. One of the things that have been challenges for me lately is that I have a difficulty hooking up with folks who have hooked up with my friends. Or it hurts me really greatly when friends of mine hook up with people who I've hooked up with before. I know I have no rights to those people. I understand that they are just special partners. But for me, all hookups have meaning and the potential for a future relationship. And so recently when a friend told me that they were going to hook up with someone who I had had sex with before and who I was looking forward to having sex with in the future and did so sort of against my communication and my, my requesting them to not, I ran up against a lot of emotional edges and senses of value and senses of worth and I'm trying to figure out how to be better slut and at the same time search for meaningful relationships in the context of having our bodies fit together first and sort of discovering who we are after, because that seems to be the modality that a lot of queer men use in New York City. I don't want to feel like someone who's lacking in relationship history anymore. I don't want to feel like I'm putting limits on my uh, relationships, but I do know that I have this edge and I ask my friends to respect that. And it's hard to understand whether I'm at fault or whether the other person wasn't listening to me and to do about it. 
Joining me to help tackle this question, Zachary Zane, sex and relationship advice columnist at Men's Health, co-author of the recently released book, Men's Health, Best Sex Ever, also editor-in-chief of the digital zine, Boy Slut, and he has a memoir of the same name coming out in May of 2023. Hey, Zach, Zachary, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me back here. I I never know if you prefer Zach or Zachary. Uh, Either work. Either work completely fine. As does... Boy slut. Okay, so <laughs> as a, I think a more accomplished slut than this slut caller, what would your advice for him be? Yeah, so essentially there were two questions in his thing. The first one is, am I the asshole for not wanting my friends to hook up with my casual hookups, uh, either previous or present? And I think the answer uh, is yes, if I'm being honest with you on this one. And that's because he exists in the queer poly world. And he is also a self-proclaimed slut. So he's hooking up with 200, 300 people. I've probably fucked this dude. I live in Brooklyn. I'm part of that same exact (laughs) scene. And I can tell you, it is a small, incestuous community. There are not a lot of other people that you can hook up with necessarily outside of this community. So I don't think it's fair for you to have dibs. I think if you were straight and monogamous oriented, yes, you could invoke a sort of bro code, which I think is fucked up, but at least that is the standard in that space. But wait, like, wait, you call that a, a sort of bro code? Yeah, have you heard that before? Yeah, that, that's that straight thing where, you know, if you're really my friend, if you're my bro, you can't yeah. date a girl that I dated I, 10 years ago I, in high school. I, I think it's wildly, wildly fucked up, but at least it is a norm somewhat in that space. And it's a more easily realized sort of norm because there's so many more straight people. We queer people, we can't hoard our sex partners, particularly if we're doing, this guy says he's doing solo poly which means he's never going to have or want, theoretically, or at least doesn't want right now, a primary partner. So he just wants to fuck around with a million people and then lock them all down? He wants a harem? He wants to be the only guy any of these guys get to sleep with ever? That I, I don't know. Sometimes I get these calls from people who are doing poly or doing open, and I what I end up thinking is, yeah, maybe not open or poly for you. Maybe what you need is monogamy, and there's... In some social circles, it's emerged as a stultifying, crushing norm for people to actually attempt to be polyamorous when they're not good at it. In the same way, it used to be this crushing social norm that everybody had to try to be monogamous, even people who that wasn't the right model of sex and relationships. Uh, Especially for queer men now, especially for queer men who live in New York, in Brooklyn, where there's this idea that everyone is poly, everyone's an open relationship, and I have to do this. Um, I, I don't think this guy is solo poly. Uh, not that I can, you can describe yourself however you want, but also because he really does claim that he wants a more serious primary partner. But I think to that end, you know, I'm not just going to shit on you. I'm going to ask yourself, like, why do you think you are getting jealous or feeling insecure? Let's try to look at the root of this instead of being like, this is an issue. I'm setting these boundaries with my friends. I think, is it a fear of you not being good enough? They're going to leave you. It's, is it a possession thing? I think this is something that's worth exploring more and trying to figure out what the root is so you can tackle it more directly. I thought it was interesting that he says he doesn't want to put limits on uh, his relationships or, or on his friends, but he has this edge, which is his discomfort when somebody's hooking up with, hooks up with somebody else he has or might want to hook up with, which could mean everybody. And he's asked his friends to respect that. And that, to me, that sounds like hey, I know this is kind of irrational, but I have this feeling and my feeling is a trump card and you have to dance. 
Yeah. You have to like honor my trump card and not do X because I'm having a feeling. And I'm sorry. Sometimes you have to say to yourself, the feeling I'm having is not legitimate and maybe disqualifying, not for friendship and not for open, but for maybe this kind of yeah. open, this wide open. Yeah, and sit with being uh, uncomfortable. Like, okay, if you're uncomfortable, you don't like it, sit with it. That's okay. And, and if you want to know how to patch things up with this friend, how about opening with an apology? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I honestly think the friend probably should have said to him, no, this is ridiculous. I'm going to do that. If, if he said, okay, I'm not going to do this and then lied and went behind your back, the friend shouldn't have done that. But I think you're putting everyone in such a weird position here that like everyone's going to mess up. No one's going to look good from this. If you tell people that they have to clear their hookups with you in advance in case you've slept with one of them, your friends are going to stop telling you who they're hooking up with. Yeah. And maybe this friend just kind of retroactively went to that point. It's like, yeah, that was a mistake. Like, I like you as a friend, but I'm not going to share the details of my sex life with you anymore since you seem to feel entitled to dictate terms to me about who I fuck. And it's not like the thing is boundaries can be set for yourself. They can't really be set for other people. And I think it bothers me where it's like, oh, you can't do this. It can be that you it's not that they can't do this. It's that they do something. You can respond to it the way that you want to respond. But you can't tell someone, especially a friend who they can't hook up with uh, when you are casually hooking up with some other people and a lot of other people in a small community. Maybe this kind of polyamory isn't right for him, but a closed triad kind of polyamory or closed quad, maybe there's a different polyamorous model where he has a little bit more control and say, and there's more sort of mutual obligation with partners than there is mutual obligation here because there's no mutual obligation here when you just have casual partners. Exactly. Not obligated to, to take into account the feelings you might have that are completely irrational. But like a committed romantic partner that you live with, Sometimes that's what your committed romantic partners do for you. They like accommodate even sometimes irrational sensitivities to demonstrate that they really care about you. I, I don't think you should control people with your irrational sensitivities, but sometimes a little compassionate sort of accommodation is a good thing, but you're not going to get that from all the queer men in Brooklyn who are fucking all the queer men in Brooklyn. Yeah, you're, you're allowed to kind of pull that trump card very seldomly. Like, like in a situation, you're like, hey, I know I'm being irrational, but if you love me, can you just do this for me? You can't do that every hookup. You can't do that all the time. Once in a while with someone you love and have that connection with, it's okay. Uh, but otherwise, no. And especially, yeah, I'm just kind of echoing what you're saying at this point. <laughs> Uh, can we talk really quickly? Uh, I have another call I wanted to tackle with you, but I also yeah. wanted to ask you about a recent essay that you you posted, Breaking Up with Anal Sex. It's, I mean, it was definitely more tongue-in-cheek, and I was having some fun with it, but I'm just getting, it's exhausting. And I mean, and I'm not like, uh, I'm not a, I'm verse in every sense of the word, and I just don't know how like 100% bottoms do it. I, like, I really don't know. It's just like, terms of the fiber and what you can and can't eat uh in terms of being hungry in terms of like oh i don't know if i'm gonna have sex so i'm gonna do like if when i douche and spend however long and then don't fuck i am furious that i wasted my time doing that <laughs> shit and like so like clearly i'm not the best person for this but the reason why i was thinking about this is so as you know i'm bisexual and i like with my partners i end up just having so much more sex with my female partners than i do my male partners and it's just because, of course, uh, you know, the anus is not self-lubricating. You have to douche. You have to clean. You have to do all this stuff. Whereas the vagina, it's like, okay, I'm horny. It, maybe we need lube. Maybe we don't. 
and you slide right in. It's just so much simpler. And of it course, seems to me, though, that you're defining their like sex with a male partner as it has to be PIB, penis and butt, like as the flip of PIV. Like there's lots of sex you can have that's not. We just that, had Dr. Joe Cordon talking about sides. I'm sure mm-hmm. you're familiar with the concept. Of course. Um, t- one of the things I love about, always loved about gained by men and sex between men is our definition of sex is so enormously broad that we have a lot more sex than straight people do. It seems to me that it's more limiting to think of, you know, penis and vagina as that has to happen. And then straight sex happened because like the gay men and bi men that I fuck around with, we don't think of that of PIB that way. Oh, absolutely. And if I had a nickel for every time I told someone being a sex columnist that like sex does not exclusively include penetration and there's so much more to do it. And that's kind of how I ended the piece. That's how I ended mm-hmm. the piece with being like, I'm just going to start sucking some more dick and giving more hand jobs because like it even kind of almost calling myself out on having this idea of sex being so limiting. And do I prefer to have a penetrative anal sex? Yeah, I do. Does all this other shit still feel fucking amazing? Yes, it does. And let's actually put the focus and effort to make these things more exciting, more fun. So I enjoy just as much as I enjoy anal sex. But yeah, kind of the way I ended this you know, tongue-in-cheek piece was like, okay, I'm not having anal sex anymore the same way I used to. I, of course, I still will from time to time, but I'm just going to yeah, put less of a focus on it. Instead, just really start enjoying doing more hand stuff, doing some more mouth stuff, sucking some more dick, and living my life that way. And what about fucking some more ass? Can't you just pivot yeah. uh, topping? No, and I, and I do, and I absolutely do. I meant it more for in terms of me bottoming. Mm-hmm. But no, and I still will have plenty of anal sex. I think it was just more of a way <laughs> for me to put less of a focus and really practice what I preach here instead of telling everyone, oh, it doesn't just have to be this to be like, okay, Zach, well, let's make that effort for yourself. Can I ask you what you think of the whole discourse over the last, I think, decade and change about top privilege? There's just this way on the internet, on Instagram and Twitter that people have of talking about anal as if the bottom is doing this favor for the top and there's nothing in it for the bottom. And the bottom is like taking the fiber pills and doing the prep and douching and doing all this emotional anal labor and gets nothing out of it. It's exclusively for the top's pleasure. When I'm sorry, have you ever met a bottom? I want to say to the people who post this shit, there's something in it for the bottom. Like bottoms like getting fucked in the ass. And sometimes you're topping because it's what your partner wants and needs. It's not a sacrifice they're making for you. It, it was almost a joke that kind of became more serious, but I think often less of it is to do with the actual physicality and the work that goes into it and more about kind of some of the still toxic gender norms that we have among tops and bottoms and how that mm-hmm. still is similar to uh, straight MF relationships where it's like almost like the top is not putting, it's not just like, oh, he's just fucked and came immediately. It's the fact that he doesn't do any cuddles. He kicks them out immediately. He doesn't show any emotions and he kind of treats them like objects in a way that most of the bottoms I know love being treated like an object sexually, but the ones who don't. Right. So I think it's not just the physical component. I think it is speaking to something about being like, okay, you should still treat the bottoms with respect. And if they want more and if they want cuddle and don't kick them out immediately and you know, since Absolutely. they, yeah. So I think that's the, a lot that goes into it. I mean, there's a difference between bottoming and being a cum dump. There's a difference <laughs> between 
you know, I think objectification is awesome and can be hot. Of course. Uh, but it should be intermittent and brief that you can be objectified by someone who then cuddles you, who then like demonstrates even in a small way, if it's a casual relationship, even if you're never going to see each other again because you're both out of town and it's a grinder hookup, you can demonstrate that you're still both people and that you can care about each other. Sometimes I feel people perform that not caring because they don't want the person to get the wrong idea about their intentions. Yeah. And you could just state what your intentions are. And like gay people tend to be better about that. Bi people mm-hmm. tend to be better at that because you can't be gay or bi if you haven't said something awkward about who you are out loud a lot. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and so you can say to somebody, I'm just in town for the night. That's one night thing, but you can still get dinner after you can still hang the fuck out. It, and it's, you can, and to, to be with somebody who can do that and also for 20 hot minutes, objectify the shit out of you and throw you around. That's the sweet spot. It, that's it. I and mean, like, because the thing is most, unless if you have a dom sub relationship outside of the bedroom, which is actually very rare and only within certain kink spaces, as opposed to like objectifying within the bedroom that people actually absolutely love. It means you do it for that 20 minutes. And then when that scene is over, that sexual experience is over then that dominance and submission is done. Then you're back to equal partners. Unless if, again, you agreed to a consensual dom-sub relationship outside of the bedroom. So if you haven't had that conversation, that's not what it is, then you fuck the shit out of them, you objectify them, and then you're super sweet. Not hard. I was reading your essay, uh, Breaking Up With Anal Sex, and I thought, oh my gosh, thank God his digital zine is called Boy Slot, Not Butt Slot, and his upcoming <laughs> book is called Boy Slot, Not Butt Slot, because <laughs> you'd have to rename everything. Oh, All right, we, have, we have another question for you. Can you hang let's out for one more? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy youth. Bi, cis male, in my early 30s, calling from the East Coast. My bi, cis female wife and I recently opened up our relationship and are having a lot of fun with a new friend who we've been meeting every few weeks or so for hanging out and having sex. It's starting to become a more consistent thing, and though we've talked a lot about safe sex practices between us, we never talked about testing practices or behaviors with other partners, etc. We want to get a sense of the risk levels we're encountering, but don't want to offend our new friend or make them feel stigmatized. They're solo poly, so we understand that they'll probably have more partners than us over time. Is there a respectful way to ask questions like, how often do you get tested, or what kind of sex do you have with other folks? What are the appropriate limits to what people in casual sexual relationships should ask for in terms of knowing the sexual lives of their casual partners? Curious what you think. Yeah, I thought he was almost like, you just say it directly. Like, like, like sexual health is something that you can communicate directly. And if he, if it's somehow he's taking it personally and be like, oh, I'm not a slut, that's on him and his internalized shame with what he does. I think it's very fair to be like, hey, we're starting to have sex more. As you know, we're poly, you're poly. I just want to know what your STI status is, how often you're having unprotected sex. I, I think that there's no magic around it. I think you say it directly and kindly. You can also start the conversation by sharing your status too, so it's better. So you can always be like, hey, just so you know, we get tested every three months. While we are fluid bonded, we don't have sex with other people without condoms. Uh, we were just interested in knowing what your status and what your what other stuff you're doing. But just being direct and kind is completely fine. Direct, kind. Also, I think what you said there is very astute. And I've always had great success with that. When we want to initiate the conversation about STI status, testing regularly, uh, we lead with our STI status. And like the last time we tested and we demonstrate a kind of, you know, I think that helps. I think it helps when you demonstrate a kind of openness 
um, and ease with this conversation, you're likely to get that openness and ease back. And the longer you wait to have that conversation, the more awkward you're going to feel when you have it. And you might come across a little stressy and get stressy back. Yeah. So just put it out there. And seeing and being open, everyone has different like tolerance of risk levels. I am a walking venereal disease at any given moment. Uh, I get tested every month, but I have a ton of unprotected sex. I let people know that. And they're completely fine with it. Either they don't most of the time, like, okay, we just wear condoms and that's completely fine. And that's okay. Everyone has different levels of risk that they're comfortable taking. So if it turns out that he is having a shit ton of unprotected sex with a lot of people, of course, do not shame him. Just let him know, hey, we don't feel comfortable uh, if we had condoms. And, and that's it, right? Like it really, just be respectful, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so so you, have a, you have a ton of sex with a ton of people. We're having a conversation about risk tolerance. What's your risk tolerance right now uh, for monkeypox? And has this emerging, what are they calling it? The World Health Organization called it emerging threat. Has it impacted the choices that you're making currently? Yes, it, that actually has. And it's because there is an end in sight to it as opposed like I know that like, or at least personally, it's like I, I got my first shot already. It was the, the biggest bitch and a half to do it in New York. And I think I refreshed about 700 times over an hour and 10 minutes. But I'm uh, not doing any threesomes, any group sex, any sex parties right now. I'm also, and this is, uh, I almost am nervous to say this because I know this can be misconstrued and misinterpreted, but I am also sleeping with more women at the moment than I am sleeping with casual sex with men B because I am bi and I do have that privilege. <laughs> That's perfectly rational. And I do think your point about that, you know, there's a window here, you know, there's an end in sight. Yeah. If we all pull up our pants for two weeks, there's an end in sight. It seems to me, you know, we were just joking earlier about like every queer poly man in Brooklyn is fucking every other queer poly man in Brooklyn. And there's a voice in the back of my head going, but I hope not. Not right now. I hope everybody's lined up uh, and online trying to get appointments to get their monkeypox vaccine so we can snuff this out. Because if it becomes endemic, if it takes root in queer male sex communities, then this horrifying disease becomes a risk every time you have sex with a man, as a man, you're at risk of contracting this disease, which is extraordinarily painful to, to, to endure and get through. And it takes about a month. And so it seems to me that this might be the summer of, let's go back to jacking off on camera with each other for a few weeks, like we did at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And then we can get this behind us. Yeah. I really think there's an end in sight. I'm like, I'm bummed. I was, I throw this party called web one called voice that then one called by slut. And I, I've been, I work on it for four months every time. And I had to let her know today it's going to be, it's supposed to be the end of August, early September. And I'm like, I, I can't, we got to push it. And I had to push the voice slut party when I did that. But it's like, of course you have to do that. Like it, it's, it, there is, it's, I, it's crazy that I, I see the organizers of parties. There's a bear, a regular bear party in Chicago that just shut down of its own accord. The health department didn't force them to. The people who many would accuse of being the irresponsible people or likely to be irresponsible, you know, people who are running big sex parties are doing, making responsible moves as you have. I'm full of admiration for you. I'm sure that's a part of your income is running these parties. Yeah. And you're setting that aside 
for the greater good. Yeah. And again, I really think there, there's a, like a, an end in sight, hopefully, at this point, right? It will be, everyone hopefully will get it in the next month, get the vaccine, excuse me, in the next month, and you get it, your second vaccine a month later. So it could be two, two and a half months, and let, let's, let's do it, right? Let's just be a little bit safer here. I, I lived through the HIV AIDS crisis. Like I came out in 1981 and right into that fucking wood chipper. And there was a lot of the promotion of, you know, J.O. parties. Once we realized that it was sexually transmitted and that anal was the most efficient mode of transmission for HIV, there was a lot of emphasis put on other kinds of sexual expression that still brought us together, that was still really sexy and satisfying, maybe not as sexy and satisfying as like laying in a sling in the mine shaft for two days, taking all comers, but there was still an outlet. And it seems to me that right now, you know, those outlets are still available to us. It does seem that with monkeypox, it's sustained skin-to-skin contact, sexual. So maybe if you can't not do nothing, J.O. with somebody without a lot of touch. J.O. with somebody from three feet away, and you're not going to get monkeypox, most likely. Yeah, and it's you're gonna get off, and it'll be hot, and then you can have a then you can like have a rain check and an it's ass check for hooking up with that person in a month. Really good timing for me to cut off uh, my butt sex, honestly. <laughs> really, really <laughs> ideal timing. It is good timing uh, to cut, and you know what? Sometimes it's good to put something on the shelf and to you know to normalize you know, open discussions of STIs. I went to college and I began to date this boy, and then I was diagnosed with an STI, and for the first like you know, three, four weeks we were together, we couldn't do anything. And it was really hot. The anticipation and buildup was really hot. So maybe we should identify the next three weeks as the three weeks of anticipation and buildup to a really explosive last couple of weeks of August. Yeah. And in the meantime, everyone get STI tested and get rid of it. So hopefully we can come back to this a month later with all of us doing better here. Zachary Zane, sex and relationship advice columnist for Men's Health, co-author of Men's Health, Best Sex Ever, editor-in-chief of the digital zine Boy Slut, and your memoir of the same name comes out May 2023. Uh, Thank you so much for jumping on the phone, Zachary. It's always such a blast to chat with you. I hope we get to meet in person sometime. Yes, one day eventually we will. Yes, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, Dan. I'm a cis bi guy in New York. I'm in an open relationship and seeking out partners on the apps for casual hookups. I'm all about talking through safer sex precautions, so STI testing, condoms, birth control, etc. I'm wondering if it's also appropriate to ask a potential hookup partner about what they would do if they got pregnant from our sex, like in the case of protection failing. Is it weird or offensive to ask someone if they would get an abortion if they were to get pregnant from our hookup? I understand they might change their mind, which is their choice, but if possible, I'd at least like to have an idea of their intentions ahead of time to avoid any surprises. I think a woman gets to make her own decisions about her body or should get to make her own decisions about her body, including the decision to terminate a pregnancy or not. You think the same thing. I also think that you get to make your own decisions about your body, including where you put your dick and under what conditions or circumstances. And so, yeah, I think you can absolutely ask this question. What you can't do is control how the person you ask it of is going to react. I think most single women or partnered women seeking casual sex partners in New York, if 
some bi guy they wanted to hook up with asked them like if something terrible happened if all three methods of birth control maybe that we're using here condoms pull out pill condoms pull out iud if they should all fail what would you do then i think most women seeking casual sex partners in new york fucking city would say i would go get a fucking abortion that's what i would do then and might be offended by you asking the question, not because they wouldn't have an abortion, uh, but because the answer to have an abortion under those circumstances is obvious. But you're allowed to ask. And if somebody is offended by that question or so weirded out by that question, by the reassurance that you're asking them for, that at least in anticipation of getting pregnant, they would have an abortion, actually facing an unplanned pregnancy, they would get to make a decision at that point, you recognize their absolute right to make that decision, to revisit that decision at that point. But yeah, in New York City, I think you're likely to encounter women who think the answer is so obvious that you didn't really need to ask that question, but it's your body. And if you would be more comfortable knowing, hearing from someone that you're going to have casual sex with, that they would get an abortion in the event of an unplanned pregnancy, you absolutely have a right to ask that question. Oh, and you're 30 years old. If you've decided that you don't want to have kids, if you and your partner have decided that you don't want to have kids, there is another birth control option for you, which is a vasectomy. You don't have to worry then about the pill failing, the condom breaking or leaking. Go, if you don't want kids, if you know that about yourself, you have the option to go get a vasectomy and then you don't necessarily have to have this conversation about an unplanned pregnancy because you're never going to create one. You're never going to make one with some casual partner or with your permanent partner. But if you're still thinking about having kids in the next decade and you'd like to keep that option open, yeah, then you're going to have to use other birth control methods uh, and have these conversations and perhaps ask this question of your casual female sex partners. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. KT Benjamin tweets, after your mini rant at the top of the show regarding how to build a sex room, Dan, and given that you only watched episode one, I thought you should see this thread from a reputable source at Girl on the Net showing that it does indeed get better. Well, it turns out at Girl on the Net also hated the first episode just like I did, but she stuck with the show, which I didn't, and she wound up falling in love with it. So... I may need to take a little more time to heal from episode one and that white sofa and white shag carpeting in the anal sex dungeon. Once I do, I will give How to Build a Sex Room another chance. Eric V tweets, Republicans secretly love what they publicly hate. Searches for trans porn highest in red state. Eric V links to a piece at lawsuit.org headlined, data finds that Republicans are obsessed with searching for transgender porn. And it would appear to be true of the 20 states with the most searches for trans porn. Only one is a blue state, Illinois, coming in at number eight. And two are reddish purple, Michigan and Pennsylvania at 16 and 20th place, respectively. Texas comes in first, followed by Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, and Kansas. And finally, Jake Van Slat tweets to all my dear friends heading to Burning Man this year, please act with love and intention and practice harm reduction. This stuff sounds awful. Jake then links to my conversation about monkeypox with Dr. Carlton Thomas. Yeah, wherever you're going right now, you're going to want to act with love and intention and practice harm reduction. And that can mean, for many of us, 
limiting your number of sex partners. That is the wisest choice at the moment. Have more sex with fewer people. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted about the show to your social media last week. We see it. We really appreciate it. Help spread the word about the Lovecast. All right, listener response calls. This is a call in response to the guy in episode 822 who was on the dating site and was sending money and Bitcoin to a supposed person, you're getting scammed, man. You're possibly on the verge of having your identity stolen. If you're ever talking to anyone and they start demanding anything like Bitcoin, it is a very common scam. And this person is probably not even based in the United States. So it makes it even harder to prosecute them when they have stolen your identity. I would change all of your email passwords, all of your passwords for everything, maybe even start canceling credit cards and even changing banks. You have been sucked into a a really bad trap and you need to stop all communication because Based on your call, it sounds like you're like a really nice guy, but you're being a little too nice in this situation. Hi, this is in response to the woman who called in episode 822 about wanting a biological child, but having a boyfriend who had two children from a previous relationship and does not want more children. I found myself in a similar position several years ago when I met my husband. He was in his late 40s with two young kids from a previous marriage. I was in my mid-30s and on the fence about having kids. Ultimately, we decided not to have our own biological child. It's obviously a very personal decision, but a perspective from several years down the road, I can tell you I truly feel like I have the best of both worlds. We split custody with my husband's ex, so half the time when we have the kids, it's wonderful. I get to indulge my parental instinct, and we do fun family activities, and the other half of the time, it's just my husband and me, and we We get to focus on our relationship and it's been absolutely fantastic. Again, a very personal decision, but one of the benefits of split custody is the ability to just really focus on and grow your relationship and also have that time for yourself. Hi, comment on episode 822, the man that discovered he's not the biological father of his four-year-old. If you think the bio dad has a low chance of causing problems or suing for custody, it might be worth reaching out and establishing communication just to get medical history. Your child already has some medical challenges. It might be worth the risk to learn more so you're better prepared. But whatever you decide, it's clear to me that this kid is lucky to have you as their logical father. And we're going to leave it Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? You can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. This Thursday at 12 Pacific time, I will be hopping into Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. If you've never joined, this is your opportunity to ask me your sex question and relationship questions live, or you can try your hand at giving a little sex advice with me, chatting one-on-one about any of the questions that we receive. 
That's this Thursday, Sack Lunch at 12 Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern. All Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers will receive the Zoom link via email Thursday morning. Be sure to read Savage Love at savage.love slash savage love. August 18th, National Couples Day. Best advice I ever gave couples was fuck first. And you can get fuck first on a beautiful mug. A daily reminder to you and your other half. Go to savage.love slash shop and get that mug now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Zachary Zane on Twitter at Zachary Zane. And you can also right now pre-order his coming book, Boy Slut. Go pre-order it right now. And also follow the tech savvy at risk on Twitter at Lovecast, T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. Well, I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you, darling.